there was a master of a house who built, who planted a vineyard. And he planted this vineyard and he built this wall all around it. And he dug out a wine press and he even built a tower. And when he was all done and the, the vineyard was all good, he rented it out to some tenants, to some, some people to work the vineyard. The idea was that these people, he would pay them to work his vineyard. And when it ta- came time for, for the harvest, for, that the fruit was ready, he would send some people to gather the fruit and it would be given to him. So that was the plan. So he, he rented it out to these tenants and he left. He went away. Well, the time came for the harvest. The time came for the fruit to come. And so he sent three servants to go, to go get the fruit, to go get what was his. It was his vineyard. But when they got there, the tenants, the people that were working the vineyard, said, well, we don't want to give up this fruit. We worked hard for it. We're not going to do that. And so they, they beat one of the servants. They stoned the second one. And they even killed the third servant. So the master sent more servants, even more than he did before, to, to get his fruit. And the same thing happened again. So finally, the master decides, well, I'll send my son. Surely they will listen to him. Surely they will give my son what is mine. But the renters, they see the son, and they say, oh, it's the heir. If we kill him, then we get the inheritance. And so they even kill his son. Now, what do you think is going to happen? Is the master going to then write them into his will that when he dies, they'll get the vineyard? No, he's not going to do that. He's going to go and he's going to kick them out of the vineyard and he's going to to give it to people who are worthy, give it to people that will produce fruit for him. But that's not the end of the story. This week, we're going to be talking about Matthew 20 and 21, which is pages 825 and 826 in your pew Bible. And I'm going to be kind of jumping around here and there, um, and, and so you can kind of follow along. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible with, with what I'm saying. In Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God over the temple. Now, we see this throughout the Old Testament with the tabernacle, this glory of God in a cloud. And so Ezekiel sees this glory of God on the temple, but the glory of God departs from the temple and goes out of Jerusalem, out through the Kidron Valley, and out over the Mount of Olives. The, the glory of God has departed from Israel. Ezekiel sees this, this sad thing happening, that the glory of God has departed from Israel. But when we get to Matthew chapter 21, we see that the glory of God has come back. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is God in, in, in human flesh. Jesus is the best revelation of God. And he shows us who God is. And so that glory of God in Jesus comes back. And he's coming back over the Mount of Olives. And he's heading towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. But he stops on the Mount of Olives and he, he sends a couple disciples in front of him. And he says, go before me and you're going to find in the next village a donkey and a colt. And I want you to untie them and bring them to me. And he says, if anybody says anything... Just tell them that the Lord has need of them and they will let you go. And so these disciples do that. They go and they get the donkey and the colt and they bring them to Jesus. And then just as it departed, the glory of God, the glory of God comes back through, from the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, to Jerusalem, to the temple. The king has come back to Jerusalem. But the king... He doesn't come back on a war horse with an army behind him to conquer the Romans, to to 
to free Israel, to deliver them, to make them a great nation again. No, no. He comes on a donkey, on a colt. Jesus comes in peace, to make peace. It says here in chapter 21, referring back to Zechariah 9 and verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem in humility. And so, like I said, as, as the glory of God departed, Jesus comes back. And he comes back into Jerusalem, and where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. The king, God himself, has come back to the temple, and what does he find? Does he find that, that everything is well, that people are worshiping, that people are making sacrifices to God, that they're honoring God, that they're following him? No, that's not what he finds. He finds that this, this house of prayer has been turned into a den of robbers, that, that they're, they're selling sacrifices at this ridiculous prices, ripping people off, that they're, they're, they're changing money and ripping people off, that, that the pastor is selling his books in the foyer of the church. <laughs> he already set me up for that one, so I, I can't not say it, right? I, I'm, I'm just kidding, though. Um, <clears throat> but Jesus finds that, that, that this has been turned into a den of robbers. And so Jesus, even though he comes in humility, even though he comes in peace, he's not going to lay down for this unrighteousness that is happening in his father's house. And so what does he do? He flips over the tables. He, he drives the money changers out, and he turns it back into a house of prayer. He starts healing people. He makes the temple what it should be. The glory of God has come back to the temple again. But it doesn't stay. Even that night, Jesus leaves again and goes back out to the Mount of Olives. The next morning, Jesus is on his way back into town, and we see one of the most peculiar miracles in the Bible happen. Jesus is hungry, and he sees this fig tree, but the fig tree has no fruit on it, and so he curses the fig tree for not producing fruit, and it withers. And the disciples are astounded. How did you do that? And um, So we get this explanation that he explains that, you know, by faith you can do anything. Um, you can move mountains by faith. And yet, doesn't really satisfy us. We're still kind of like, that's still kind of a weird miracle. What, what is Jesus doing here? But I think if we look in that context, if, you, if you've heard the words that I've just spoken, these stories, what's going on right now, I think we can clearly see what's happening. That fig tree is Israel. God has come back to Israel, and there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Just like that parable at the beginning of the tenants. The master sends his servants, and there's no fruit. And they beat and they kill them. He even sends his own son and there's no fruit. And so what does he say? In chapter 21, verse 43, in the midst of that parable, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And we see this theme throughout Matthew, this, thing of, this theme of the kingdom. And especially in these chapters, we see this theme that the kingdom is being taken away from Israel and it's being given to somebody else. And I think it's important for us to understand what, is, what are we talking about with this? What does it mean that Israel had the kingdom in the first place? What, what are we referring to? And so we have to go back. Jesus, not, sorry, we go back all the way to Abraham God chose Abraham, and from Abraham would come this chosen people to be the kingdom of God, to be God's representatives on earth. And 
And we see that the intention was that was not just for it, them to keep it to themselves, not just for them to be the set apart nation by themselves, you know, glorifying God, but for them to spread that message. They were set apart, but they were set apart to show people something different, that God was different than the world. And so that was the goal. They were, they were to be this kingdom of God that would, that would spread to the nations. And yet what we see that the Israel's history is, is very up and down with a lot, of, a lot of down parts. And when we get to this point in history, this time of the Pharisees, it's, it's at this low point. The Pharisees have received this kingdom in pride. We are the chosen people of God. And they've built these, these forms, they've built this religion, all these things that they have to do, and they've left God out of it. They've said, thanks for your word, God. We're going to make up all these things that we have to do, these lists. We're going to follow it, um, but we don't need you anymore. This is our plan. We're good without you. And so they do that, and they look really good from the outside, but they're not producing fruits. They've figured out a way to do everything God says without their heart being in it. And so because of that, because they're not producing fruits, because they're, they're, they're keeping away all the other nations, because they're not spreading God's love to the world, they are being rejected. But in the midst of that rejection, we still see one of the most wonderful things in the history of the world happen. We go back up one verse from from there, um, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And is it marvelous in our eyes? In the midst of that parable, the tenants kill the son. We see a clear picture of what's going on here, right? Jesus has sent his son, and yet they're going to kill him. And yet what they didn't know was that that stone that they rejected, if you think about building a foundation, and, and the foundation has this cornerstone, and yet they've taken Jesus and they've completely rejected him. No, this won't work at all in our foundation. We're going to reject him, and yet God has said, no, that's the cornerstone, That's the stone that we put first, that we set everything else, that makes it square, that makes it stand. That's Jesus. But you have rejected him. And what we see is that even though Israel is not producing fruits, even though they've rejected God, even though they've walked away from God, God is still going to fulfill his promises through them because of his son, Jesus, through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus is Israel as it should have been. And we see this miraculous thing happening where God still fulfills his promises through Israel because he does it through a Jew, because he does it through his son, Jesus. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for our sins and he raises again and we have life in him and salvation comes from the Jews because it comes from Jesus. God still used Israel despite all of their problems, despite their lack of fruit for his glory because he does it through his son, Jesus. And it's miraculous for us to understand that. And so Israel has been rejected as the kingdom. It's been fulfilled through Jesus, through God's son. And the kingdom has been given to somebody else. The kingdom has been given to us, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And there's still that question of, okay, what does that mean? We've been talking about the kingdom throughout all of Matthew. What does that mean for me? What is the kingdom? What are we talking about when God has given me the kingdom? I want to explain it like this. We live in a place called the borderlands. We live in the border between one kingdom and another. 
because we, we have the reality of the kingdom of God in our hearts because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. God living inside of us is the kingdom of God inside of us. So we live in the reality of, of the kingdom of God being inside of us, and yet we walk in the kingdom of darkness. We live in this world that is the kingdom of darkness. Even though Satan has been defeated, death has been defeated on the cross, Satan is still reigning here. And we walk in this kingdom of darkness. And the truth is, we know, we read Revelation, we know that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So when we talk about God's kingdom, I'm not saying that, that we bring God's kingdom to earth and everything's going to be great and we're going to make the world right again. We're going to make everybody Christians again and it's going to be great. No. This is a kingdom of darkness, and yet the light shines within us because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. We are that light because God shines through us, even in the midst of the darkness. But our goal is not to bring, our, our, not to bring the kingdom to, to government or to the earth, to the world. It's to bring it to individuals. It's to bring it to the people. I can't change the world, but I can change people's lives because of what Jesus has done in me, because I have the kingdom of God in my heart. And so when we talk about the kingdom, that's what I'm talking about, is that we have, through the Holy Spirit, we have God in us, and we can change people's lives through that. And that's what we've been given the kingdom to do. Jesus says in the parable of the two sons, I'm not going to go through the parable, but I'm going to read this verse. This is still, still in chapter 21, verse 31. Um, a little bit into the verse, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. You believe what Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees? He's saying the tax collectors and prostitutes will get the kingdom before you. That is the most insulting thing that anybody could ever say to them, that these lowest people in society to them, tax collectors and prostitutes, are going to get the kingdom of God before them. But there's a reason why they will, and it's because of how they receive the kingdom. The tax collectors and prostitutes receive the kingdom in humility. Now, it's not because they're naturally humble people. He's not saying that tax, all tax collectors and prostitutes are humble. But when they receive the kingdom of God, they receive it in humility because they know that they don't deserve it. We see that in Zacchaeus. We see that in the woman crying at Jesus' feet. They receive it in humility. They know that they don't deserve it. But the problem is, is that Israel, the Pharisees, they have received the kingdom in pride. They've said, look at us. Look how special we are. God has given us our kingdom because we're so good. You, you, you dirty people, stay out of it. You can't come to God's kingdom because you're not special like us. And because they received it in pride, they give it forth in pride, and nobody comes. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, the, God that, the people that God will use, they receive the kingdom in humility, and that's how we have to receive it. That's, that's us. We're the tax collectors and prostitutes. Not really, but that's who he's given it to, and he's given it to us. And we can choose to either be like that, we can choose to receive it in humility, or we can receive the kingdom in pride and think that God is giving it to us because of how great we are. Because I'm special and God chose me because it's not about who I am, it's about who he is. And if I receive it in humility, I will give it forth in humility. And I, and I think that's what's going on here. We see this, this transition of the kingdom. 
The kingdom is being taken away from Israel and it's being given to someone else. It's being given to us. And how we receive it determines how we share it. Now I want to go back to chapter 20. To this parable at the beginning that I told the kids, the laborers in the vineyard. We have this situation where this master owns a vineyard and he, he hires workers all throughout the day. He starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and he agrees with the people, um, with the first people to pay them a day's worth of a, day, a day's wage for their work, which is fair. They're working for a day, they get a day's wage. But then he hires people, um, you know, all throughout the day, even, even an hour before closing time, he hires more people. It comes time for them to be paid, and uh, they line up, and he has the people who, who started last, the people who started at 5 p.m., he has them line up last, or first, and he pays them first, and he pays them a full day's wage. And so the people in the back of the line are kind of looking, saying, oh, man, we, we're going to get more, because if they're getting a full day, how much are we going to get? But they still get a day's wage. They're indignant. They're, What's going on? Shouldn't we get more? That's not fair. The master says, did I did I do any injustice? Was I unfair? I told you I was going to pay you a day's wage, and that's what I paid you. He, he wasn't unfair with them. No, he just chose to show generosity to everybody. And ultimately, I see that with, with our place in heaven, because it's not about us. It's not about who we are. It's about him. It's about Jesus and what he did for us. And that's humility. He says the last line of that parable is the the last will be first and the first will be last. And he says the kingdom of God is like this. It's a kingdom of humility. And how we receive it determines how we will share it. When we realize we don't deserve it, we share it that way. Jesus goes on to, to talk about his death next. Um, and and he, this is the third time he's done it here. And, and so he tells the disciples that, about his death, and this is chapter 20, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. He's telling them what's about to happen. And in doing that, keeping on this theme of humility, Jesus is describing the greatest act of humility that the world has ever known, that the universe has ever known. You see, if there's, if there's one being in the whole universe that could be prideful, it's God, right? God righteously, I think God could, could righteously be prideful, just like he can have righteous jealousy. Because he is the best, and we are all lower than him, so he can be prideful. The only one that, that can be prideful decides to show us the greatest humility by coming down as a man and dying for us, by dying for the tax collectors and prostitutes. And the greatest act of humility ever. This is a kingdom of humility. Because the kingdom reflects the master. The kingdom of God reflects him. And he's shown us that greatest humility through his death on the cross. He shows us the example of what we are to live by. Humility. Then we get to this next situation that is another interesting situation. Um, where, where this mother asks, asks Jesus a request. So we have um, James and John. You've heard of them before. I have a picture of them when they were kids. Picture, is it going to work? I decided if the picture didn't work, God didn't want me to show it. So um, it's too bad. It was of my kids, so that was going to be cute. But. <laughs> so 
James and John, the sons of thunder, right, the sons of Zebedee, their mom comes to Jesus, and it's, it's unclear, we can speculate, um, whether they were getting their mom to do this or whether their mom was, was doing this on her own and they were standing by embarrassed, but she comes to Jesus and she says, can I, can I make a request of you? And he says, he says yes, what, what would you like? And she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So she's asking a big, a big thing, right? And the, the other disciples are there, and they're watching this happen, and they're not very happy. What? Let's go. You got your mom to ask if, if you could sit at his right and left hand? Come on. And so Jesus, he responds by saying, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Well, they don't really know what he's asking them. We do, because we know the end of the story. But they respond, yes, I'm able to drink it. They say, we are, we are able. And he says to them, you will drink my cup. He does give this indication that, that yes, they will drink this cup. They are going to suffer for his sake. But, he says, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. In the midst of a fairly prideful situation, God shows the way of humility again. Even in himself. God, Jesus says, it's not my authority to grant that. Jesus is God. He has all authority. And yet we see, we see all throughout, especially the book of John, he's submitting to the Father's authority. He says, not mine, but your authority, my Father's authority. I do this on my Father's authority. He doesn't assert himself, but he gives that to the Father. And so in that humility, he says, that's not mine to grant. And then he uses this as a teaching opportunity. And he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, he's showing us a different way, a way of humility. The first shall be last. If you're going to be great, you must be a servant. If you're going to be first, you must be a slave. Because Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve. Once again, looking at that greatest act of humility, Jesus coming down as the king, but remember, he comes as the king in humility, riding on a donkey, not, not coming into Jerusalem to set up his throne to have everybody bow down to him, but instead to actually give up his own life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows us humility in that. And I think there's something else in this passage that we can learn from, and that is sometimes we're a little like Mother Zebedee in that we want what's best for our kids, right? Now, that's not wrong. But too often, we want our plan for our kids, not God's plan for our kids. How often do we plan our whole kid's life out? We say, okay, you're going you're gonna to get good grades in school now so you can go to a good college. You get good grades there so you can get a good job. You can make lots of money. You can take care of me when I'm old. We, we plan out these things for our kids, and when they don't meet our expectations, we're disappointed. What? You're not living up to my plan for you. When they don't make the sports team, or when they don't, you know, ah, this is frustrating my plan. And really, we've made this plan, and we want God to stay out of it unless he's going to help. But too often that's true, isn't it? How many times have we made these plans without a thought for God, without a prayer saying, God, where would you lead in this? A lot of parents want their kids to grow up and be doctors. But if everybody is a doctor, then there's a lot of things that are going to be missing in the world. 
What if instead we approached it a different way? What if instead we looked and we said, okay, God, what is your plan for my child? What do you have in mind? Because that's where I want to be. And ultimately, I think that's really what this comes down to with humility and pride. Humility is submitting to God's plan and saying, your will be done. And pride is saying, nope, I'm going to do it my way. That goes all the way back to the beginning. That goes all the way back to the first sin. Adam and Eve, we want to know good and evil. We don't trust that God knows it without us. We want our own plan. We want to do it our way. And we've been doing the same exact thing every time we sin since then. Because when we sin, we're saying, yeah, I know you've said that that's wrong, God, but I don't really agree with you. I like my plan better. Whether it's some subconscious or whether we're consciously saying that that's what's going on with sin is that it's all based on pride. And yet, this is a kingdom of humility. And humility is laying down our agendas, laying down our plans and saying, God, your will be done. Because a lot of those things that we would have our, our kids do maybe aren't the most important things for their life. Maybe that's not what they need. And so I encourage you to seek God in the midst of that, to pray. He has given us his kingdom. He's given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. And I promise you, if you submit to yourself, yourself to him, you will see that he will, he will work his plan out. And going with God's plan is so much better than constantly trying to fight against it. But that's not just true for our kids. It's true for our own life. It's true for me. I have to tell you, one of the biggest things I struggle with in life is pride. And it's one of those sins that just keeps coming back up in my life. The last couple years have been really big for me, and I found a lot of victory over sin. And I don't have time to talk all about that today, but one of those sins that in the midst of that that just keeps coming up is pride. I get rid of these sins and God gives me victory over them and it's great and then the next thing I know I'm, I'm prideful again. Even in the midst of humility, the problem is is the, the moment you realize you're being humble, you're being prideful again. <laughs> it's like, oh man, I have been so humble lately. Oh shoot, I just lost it. It's one of those ones that just keeps, keeps coming back up and it's so common in our lives. A lot of times we don't even realize it. But it is, it's, it's a big deal. There was a, there was a situation recently um, with some youth ministry stuff and um, I'm intentionally gonna be pretty vague because a lot of it hasn't necessarily, I haven't gotten it all figured out yet, worked out yet and so I'll just let your minds go to whatever you think I'm talking about. But um, I had a parent approach me um, to, to talk to me about some concerns that they had about some logistical things with youth group. And, and I know what you're thinking, oh no, a parent talking to, you know, it, it was an awesome conversation, it went great, there was no negativity or criticism or anything like that. But this parent approached me and just said, you know, like, I just don't know if we can keep doing this. Like, with the way things are going, with, with the way things are laid out, the logistical things with youth group, I just don't think it's, it's going to work. And, well, I had pride, right? A year ago, God very clearly led us into some changes with the youth ministry, with the youth group. And it was very clear that God was doing it, and it was awesome, and it went great. And so I had this mind frame of, well, you know what? God brought us here, and so we're just going to keep doing God's will because, you know, he, he put us here. And so uh, I'm just going to keep following God because this is what God wants us to do. And so 
um, at the end of the conversation, I did say, well, I, I will pray about it. And I kind of meant it, but I really meant, I already know what God's going to say, but I'll pray about it. And um, like I said, it wasn't a bad conversation or anything. Don't start thinking that there's problems with parents and the youth pastor or something like that. Um, but I left, and, and I remembered a couple days later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to pray about that. And Because uh, too often, I, I really have tried to keep myself accountable. It's too often I tell people I'll pray about something, and I don't. So I want, I want to pray about those things. And so I went into it with that mind frame of, okay, God, I already know what you're going to say, but I'll pray anyways. God said, do you think I can't speak through that parent to you? Do you think that I can't change my plans? Do you think that maybe that thing you did a year ago was just a stepping stone to something else? Do you think that I don't have something bigger going on? Don't just assume because I did one thing that you're just walking in my will all the time. And it really hit me that I, w- I really was being prideful. And especially when you attach God's will to your own pride, that's when it gets messy because it's not true and yet you feel like everything's great because I'm doing God's will when maybe you aren't. God really convicted me in that situation and I went, okay God, what do you want me to do? And ultimately what I found in youth ministry is that that's kind of the attitude I need to have because if I just set up my perfect program of what I think is perfect program of youth ministry and I say, okay, God, um, thanks for helping me set that up. We're good to go. You can, you can do something else. <laughs> I'm a Pharisee. That's what they did. What I have to do is I have to wake up every morning and say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? And I have to trust in him. And it's not easy because we quickly slip back into those other patterns of thinking, those other patterns of living where we're doing our own thing again. We're over here. We're away from God. We're living our own life. God wants us to join him in his ministry because it's so much better. We've been given this kingdom And it's a kingdom of humility. And if we receive it with humility, then we give it forth with humility. And that's how we live our lives, but it's also how we share that with others. And a big aspect of this is evangelism. That's kind of the whole point, right? We've been given the kingdom to give it to other people, to shine that light in the darkness, to show other people the kingdom. And I can tell you that the kingdom does not spread through through pride. Nobody comes to Jesus because you're like, look at me, I'm such a cool Christian, I've got it all together, God chose me because of how awesome I am, um, and you should be a Christian like me. No, that's not where people see Jesus. They see him through humility. And that's where the light shines through is in the midst of the humility in our lives. Laying down our lives for others, being willing to lay down our rights, being willing to lay down ourselves for other people For the sake of the kingdom, that's where they see Jesus because that's who Jesus was. If it's a kingdom of humility, people aren't going to see it through the lens of pride. They're going to see it through humility. And I want to encourage you in both of those ways. We've been given the kingdom. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself living inside of us. How we receive that is incredibly important. Because if I receive it, And I realize that I didn't deserve it. There was no part of me that ever did anything to deserve God's grace. Jesus dying on the cross for me 
and I receive it with humility. And that puts me in a different place when I tell people about what he's done. Because he's done this in my life. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. And it's not because of who you are, it's because of who he is. And we share that gift, we share that gospel, we share that truth with humility. And I could spend all day talking about what humility looks like in the life of a Christian, but I don't need to because you know. We know where we're being prideful in our lives. We know where we're being humble. And we know how to be humble. We have that example of Jesus. And look what Jesus did for us. It's a response to what he's done for us. What we do for other people is a response to what he's done for us. So I encourage you, you've been given the kingdom. Give it to others in humility. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would understand better what you did for us on the cross. That in that single greatest act of humility that the world has ever known, you laid down your life for us, for the tax collectors, for the prostitutes, for the people that didn't deserve your grace, and yet you have given it to us freely. And I pray that we would understand better how to receive that in humility, Lord, so that we can give it in humility. Lord, would we live our lives every day in humility for you? Not asserting our own plans, not asserting our own agenda, but giving way to yours and knowing what you're doing in our life, what you're doing in the world around us. Would we join you in that, Lord? And when we share your word, your gospel, your truth in humility with other people, that we would show them the true kingdom, the kingdom of humility. In your name, amen.